Well, in my pre-Anglican existence, Christmas ended at midnight on December 25. But the church reminds us that we're not to leave Christmas in the dust and rush ahead. We're to linger a little bit longer in our worship of the infant king as we celebrate the epiphany, the appearing, the revelation. And as we linger here, we continue singing a Christmas carol or two. We ponder the appearance of the star. We travel with the magi and we kneel and worship with them, rejoicing as Jesus is revealed as Messiah, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus is born at the end of chapter one, but by the beginning of chapter two, we have made a jump and we realize that Mary and Joseph may very well have decided to stay and raise Jesus in Joseph's hometown of Bethlehem in Judea. And then sometime in those first two years, the small family welcomes some visitors, traditionally called wise men. As a child in a Baptist church, I was assured that these visitors were not astrologers. They were astronomers. The Greek word here, not that I know the Greek, but I have read, um, is magi, and the literal meaning is magician or astrologer. I don't know what you think of astrology. We all probably know a little bit about horoscopes, though we wouldn't admit it, and at least we know our own sign. This is the kind of thing the wise men were involved in. The NRSV study notes say the magi were experts in dreams, omens, and prophecies. These practices may have been a part of the science of the day, but we know the Old Testament pretty clearly condemns magi types using words like idolatrous and portraying them as deceivers who are to be avoided. There was even a Jewish rabbi who wrote these words a little before the birth of Jesus. He who learns from a rabbi is worthy of death. So the presence of the Magi in Matthew seems pretty outrageous. These guys were involved in what we sometimes label New Age religion. They would have felt at home at the Theosophical Society, which is located in Wheaton, by the way. So why does Matthew put them here in chapter 2, front and center? Because this is what Matthew does. He starts on page one of his gospel with the genealogy of Jesus and includes women. That's shocking enough. But each of these women had a tarnished history. Tamar, sexually involved with her father-in-law. Rahab, a prostitute who believed. Ruth, married to a pagan, a non-Jew, and Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, calling attention to the soap opera-ish kind of story in which David saw to it that Uriah was killed in the battle so he could have Bathsheba as his wife. So from the very beginning, Matthew seems intent on opening up the circle of salvation to include unlikely people from all nations in fulfillment of what God had promised to Abraham millennia before. You will be a blessing to all nations. So all were to be included, not just men, 
but women too, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, not just Orthodox, but unorthodox. God's love would reach them all. But astrologers? Matthew doesn't defend astrology or deny the Bible's earlier warnings about fortune tellers. What he seems to be conveying is the reach of God's grace to all. The Magi had come from the area that is now Iran, and because Jewish people through the centuries had been captured and exiled and moved around, the Magi had probably heard murmurings from Jewish settlers about the birth of a king. A Roman scholar wrote, throughout the whole of the East, there had spread an old and persistent belief that destiny had decreed that at that time, men coming forth from Judea would seize power and rule the world. Most of our lives, we've had depicted in our manger scenes three wise men or three kings traveling to find Jesus. But as we study, we realize they weren't terribly wise, they weren't kings, and there were probably not three of them. What we can say with assurance is that they were seekers, seekers after God. These men who dabbled in new age and different practices than we're familiar with discovered a configuration of stars in the sky that seemed to confirm the word they'd heard about a new Jewish king being born. However unscientific and pagan their way of looking at the stars, somehow they correctly sensed that an important event had occurred on the earth that might be in their reach. In fact, they were so sure of this that they undertook a long and hazardous journey to investigate. These astrologers set out to find the king they had heard about and now had been confirmed by the star, a star that moved. I suppose if the wind and, and waves obeyed Jesus, so could the stars move. St. Chrysostom writes, the star of Bethlehem was not an ordinary star, for no other star has this capacity to guide, not merely to move, but to beckon. In my work with children on the autism spectrum, we make accommodations to help them function more successfully. If a child had an area of interest that they obsessed on, rather than avoiding that subject, we use it as a motivator to work on language and social interaction. The Magi were obsessed with stars, and God used the star to draw them. This touches me. God, through his tenacity, his gentleness, his accommodating grace, demonstrated his willingness to bend even to the pagan vocation of these men. Using their deep interest in the heavens, knowing that the star would, would get their attention. We know from this passage that they saw this star as actually belonging to the king that they were looking for because they said when describing him, we have seen his star. A prophecy 
of the Messiah in Numbers 24 says, a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. In Revelation 22, Jesus speaks, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. And in 2 Peter, the King James says this, the day star rises in our heart, describing that manifestation of Christ to one's soul. A supernatural star in the night sky pointed then to the bright and morning star. At that time in Judea, Herod, though he wasn't from the line of David, had taken the title for himself, King of the Jews. In reality, he was a puppet of the Roman government and was particularly known for his ruthlessness against Jewish people. Following the star then, the Magi come with limited information. They need directions, and naively, they ask King Herod, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? This is a huge misstep, because as you know, it was through questioning the Magi as to the time the star first appeared that Herod calculated the approximate age of the new king and ordered all the male babies two years and under to be killed. This is the kind of unthinkable evil that lives in the hearts of human beings as they attempt to protect their own power and influence and operate out of their pathological narcissism. We've seen it recently in Vladimir Putin starting in an entirely unprovoked war and killing and torturing civilians in Ukraine, not to speak of driving so many, many millions from their homes. This is the kind of sin, along with the more acceptable and less obvious sins that you and I are involved in, that made it necessary for Jesus to die. The Magi didn't have the full story. They made terrible errors in judgment, and as a result, many suffered. But because of their courage, they dared to set out on this long, uncertain, and imperfect journey. Many other magi must have comfortably remained at home studying old truths and patterns. But because of their nerve, these men found themselves center stage in the story of the ages. This seems odd because Matthew is the gospel written particularly for Jewish people. But Matthew wants to make it clear right out of the chute that this baby is going to break all the Jewish rules. He's going to be a savior for the whole world. The boundaries will be extended to even those who we might be suspicious of because of their imperfect understanding or questionable beliefs. And these astrologers were the first we read of to worship Jesus. In fact, it says to us, the scriptures, they were overwhelmed with joy as they knelt down and worshiped him. A.W. Tozer writes that we are created and redeemed that we might first be worshipers of the most high God not only saved to serve, as some of us have been taught 
and are recovering from, but redeemed, rescued to worship. Is that a surprising thought to you or a shocking thought, maybe even disturbing? Tozer defines worship as a feeling in our hearts that must be expressed in some way. And in the process, we are humbled and filled with a delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder. He implies that some emotion is involved. And Richard Foster defines worship this way, our responding to the overtures of love from the heart of the Father. We can have the best possible liturgy, and we do, but we have not worshiped the Lord until the Holy Spirit touches our spirit with the tender love and grace of Jesus, and we respond with adoration. Of course, we do choose to worship. We come here whether we feel like it or not, and by an act of our will, worship, no matter what has happened in our lives, to discourage us or to disrupt our adoration. But it's difficult to imagine worship without some emotion. We read that the Magi were overwhelmed with joy. Now, you might be thinking, well, that's fine for you, Linda. You feel comfortable singing loudly and raising your hands. But I'm an introvert. I just want to worship quietly, some of you might be thinking. That's fine. I bless that. Because worship isn't about loud or quiet, but it is about that deep joy that fills us when the Holy Spirit makes Jesus real to us. And that can be expressed quietly or exuberantly. Now, the trend in the culture over the past 30-plus years has been to be comfortable and casual in worship, not to get too excited. But being emotionless can disengage us from adoration. And as someone has written, tame the mystery. The Book of Common Prayer is primarily a book of worship that seeks to retain and relish that mystery. Anglicans, above everything else, appreciate the mystery of worship, of encountering God. There was a song we used to sing in one of my former lives, to come into the presence of the living God is to be changed. When the Magi worshipped, everything changed for them. Rather than follow Herod's directions to return and report to him where the new king was, the scripture tells us they went home another way. They were given fresh discernment about Herod, and when they obeyed the dream God gave them, their feet were set on a new path. This morning, we have followed the Magi, unlikely people, who went on an imperfect journey, a risky one, with amazing results because God was in it. Their wholehearted and life-changing worship of the one who is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, their wholehearted worship of him changed them. The risks of the journey had been worth it, 
But as they return home on an alternative road, what they may or may not have realized was that the danger wasn't over. They had no idea that meeting this small infant king was in and of itself a risk. For what would he become? What would they become as a result of worshiping him? Mary and Joseph wondered that too, particularly with the prophecies spoken over Jesus. What their son would become? Would he make their lives easier or more difficult? What would he demand of them? Those of you who are parents know that infants are generally demanding. And even as we sing, little Lord Jesus, no crying we makes, he makes, we know that's not accurate. Babies do cry late at night, early in the morning, during sermons. They demand that you rearrange your whole life around them. Baby Jesus did as any baby would. But as he grew and lived and preached and died and rose again, he also caused those who worshipped him to rearrange their lives in ever-deepening ways. One central rearrangement for the first century Jewish believers is that they would be called to accept Gentiles as fellow followers in the one true God and in his Son. That's what we're celebrating this morning. Beginning with the the visit of the Magi, it was becoming clear that to bow down and worship this infant king was to say, above all, I have decided to follow Jesus no matter what. This Jewish Messiah was going to break out of the Jewish mold and welcome everyone, all people. The gospel would become more and more inclusive. To encounter this young child was and is to be encountered ourselves. It means we must let go of controlling our own lives and, like the Magi, fall to our knees. It's opening our arms to all, whether they follow Jesus in exactly the same way that we do, whether they fit our evangelical mold or not. It's moving to me that God, extending his love and acceptance to us Gentiles, was not just an afterthought. As N.T. Wright states, God always intended to bring the nations of the world into equal fellowship with his chosen people. Here, in the first two chapters of Matthew, we have met a group of pagan astrologers who went on an imperfect journey. Magi who didn't have all the answers, just as we don't have all the answers. We make errors of judgment that have disastrous effects on ourselves and others, just as they did. And we need God to make accommodations for us as individuals and as a church in this next year to extend his accommodating grace to us. So here are two questions for us, all of us, to carry into this next year. What paths will we not take in this year? And what new paths 
will we venture out onto? As we dare to come and kneel with the Magi, to lay ourselves and all that we have before the Savior, the child, Jesus, imperfectly but as fully as we can, we very likely will go home another way. And that way is the way of life. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.